Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. This is kind of a special book that we're going to get to, and most of us have heard us, and most of us know the story, so there's no spoilers. Um, it is what you get in Sunday school. There are cartoons around it. If you are Muslim and you read the Quran, there's a version of this in the Quran. The Dead Sea Scrolls have Jonah packed in there, or parts of Jonah. Um, and if you are Jewish, the book of Jonah gets read at Yom Kippur. So this is, it's not just any old book. Of course, all of the Bible is wonderful, but the book of Jonah is pretty special and it, it has, it captures the imagination. It's visual. Uh, it is packed with the theology. Uh, the way in which it shadows or reflects Jesus is amazing. So we're going to dig into that over this retreat and do all four chapters. So by the time we leave this retreat, we're not just going to eat fish. We're going to know all about the book of Jonah and we'll have it. I, I hope we leave knowing Jonah better than we did when we walked in. And that's the goal with anything with the word of God. So Jonah's a literary masterpiece. So for as we dig into this, it's only think of the size of it. It's only four chapters and everything we're going to cover and the way in which this story goes all over the place uh, is really pretty stunning. It's a complex book. I would argue this is not a book for children. Though it is turned into a cartoon with Veggie Tales, what's in here when you actually read it is really thick and robust theology. But for an ancient book, it uses irony. It's got satire in it. Uh, it's got a prophet that fails, sailors that repent, a king who humbles himself, and even the cows repent, right? So it's got these really interesting literary kind of contrasts throughout the book. It's got four major miracles, and a lot of times we think of Jonah, we think of the fish, but there's four miracles. There's the storm in chapter one, the fish in chapter two, the city in chapter three, and the plant in chapter four. So we'll come back to each of those four miracles because they each say something very different about how people repent. Jonah shows a lot about our differences because not everybody comes into the kingdom the same way. For different people, it takes different kinds of things to bring us into the kingdom. And it helps us evangelize if we know those four different types and we know those four different kinds of people because we can then communicate our faith with different people in different ways. And Jonah gives us those kinds of packages as we go through it. Um, and then last but not least, this is not just prophetic of Christ. It is the Old Testament resurrection story. And in that, all of the Jewish people would debate about if resurrection was possible or not possible. And the book of Jonah was what held the faithful Jewish people believing there was such a thing as a resurrection before Jesus ever showed up. So when Jesus was resurrected, there were a, a number of Jewish people that believed that would happen. In fact, it was one of the key points of debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the Pharisees believed that the resurrection and miracles were possible. Sadducees believed they weren't. So we get into that. And, and we will unpack this thing verse by verse. The first verse I'm going to spend a lot of time with because there's a lot of context here. So, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, 
the word there is, the word of the Lord is not necessarily like God's word, but the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In, in other words, the word is daba, and it means speech, and it's typically spoken speech. As though Jonah was saying things that God gave him to say, like the Holy Spirit was inspiring him. Uh, it, it is the exact same phrasing as when the word of the Lord came to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 1. Uh, there's a vision when that happens, and it's like Abraham hears what's going on, and we don't get that specifically here. But when it happened with Abraham and the word of the Lord spoke to Abraham, uh, it was, most people believe, a Christophany. So right at the beginning of Jonah, now the word is almost like what we see at the beginning of John, where it says, in the beginning was the word. As though someone is actually speaking to him verbally, not something where he's hearing something out of a bush, like he's talking to God. So some people believe that that's an indication that Jonah is actually a Christophany, but there's a huge question mark with that. Um, and John 1 has that kind of phrasing that's the same kind of thing, as though John, when he's writing the book of John, is reflecting Genesis, but he's also reflecting what happens in Jonah. And John, when he's writing the book, knows that he's about to write a resurrection story. So we see that kind of parallel here too. Now, um, how Jonah hears God is not the point. The point is that God spoke to him. Jonah is, in the Hebrew, means dove, and it implies weak and gentle and fragile. So Jonah is not a manly name. It's kind of a weak name. Uh, and it is uh, as it would be a name that might often be given to a female. Um, so it is a, an affectionate kind of name that a, a parents would give to their son. Um, which growing up with the name Jonah might have been tough for Jonah in that sense. The little kids in middle school would make fun of him. But if you also think about it, <laughs> dove is a really important bird, a bird when we get through the scriptures. A dove or a, the image of the dove alighting or coming to the baptism of Jesus was an image of the Holy Spirit being present with things. So when you see a word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, you've actually got the Lord, the dove, and the son all in the first sentence. So for people who like to pick apart the Bible, that's a really cool first sentence to the Bible, is that you've got those pieces of a trinity in there symbolically right off the bat. So we get this image of God's spirit right in the name of it. Uh, Noah um, uh, uses this bird, or in Genesis 8, uh, we also get that image there. That image of the bird as a, uh, an image of the Holy Spirit is also in the Song of Solomon. So we do see throughout the Bible that that bird is also often associated with the Spirit of God. Jonah's mentioned in 2 Kings 14. Contextually, one thing about Jonah that's important is that it is Jonah is a historical character because we have a historical book like the book of Kings and Jonah's recorded in that book as a real living historical personality, not a myth or a fable. We're not talking about Hercules here or, or you know, that various characters in history. Um, when we see Jonah in 2 Kings 14, verse 25... He's a failed prophet. So one thing to know about Jonah when we get into this story is he's a prophet that went to the king and said, do or don't do this, or he gave him weak advice and compromised it at his advice, and the king went off to battle on the advice of Jonah and lost the battle. In Jewish history, that just never happens. 
So Jonah is somebody that's not really um, celebrated, but he's known. And his name is known, and it's recorded, and Jonah would have been known by the nations around him too. He would have been a character or there. He's serving an evil king. That gets to be a big deal later on. Uh, when this is written, the name alone in the first sentence should identify to a Jewish reader. Reader. So they would see this Jonah, son of Amittai, in verse 1, and they would immediately recognize historically where that's at. It's like if I were to tell a story and say, this is about George Washington. You'd know exactly what period of history I was in and who I was talking to. Um, so in Kings, we also see about Jonah that he's from Gath Heifer. That's important too. Here in this book, he's just Jonah. He's Jonah, the son of Amittai. Um, but an Amittai, by the way, means my truth. So if you want to further put symbolic nature on that first sentence, the word Amittai means truth or my truth. Um, so <laughs> now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, could also be read, speech of Jehovah, dove, son of my truth. See what I'm saying? This is a really cool first sentence. So if you look at Jeroboam 2 in 786 to 746 BC, Jonah tells him he'll win the battle. He does. And then Amos, Amos points out that it's a short-lived battle because they weren't supposed to fight it. So we can get into that when we get into kings. But at the end of the day, Jonah gives, some, gives the king exactly what the king wants to hear. He tickles his ears. And God raises up Amos, another pro pro prophet, in order to contradict Jonah and replace Jonah. So Jonah's not exactly high up there when it comes to the Lord's stuff. Biblically then, uh, his character is not one of those shining characters in the Bible. But we have the book of Jonah. So here's the book. It's presenting a historical person, and it is primarily the story of a rebellion, Jonah rebelling against God. So again, not the shiniest personality. But for an overt sinner... This is from, but it's not someone, I'm sorry, it's not somebody who's rebelling against God that's an overt sinner. It's somebody who's rebelling against God who's a prophet of God. One of God's own who God talks to has trouble dealing with Jonah and Jonah regets it. So this is a story as we get into the first sentence. Even the godly can be given over to sin and rebellion. Every one of us in the room that are serving the Lord with our life we can fall into sin too. Jonah's a story about how that can get dealt with by God. And it sometimes involves fish. So regardless is the premise. When God speaks, we have the free will to reject that. Major theological principle. We don't have to listen to God because God doesn't force himself on humanity. He wants us to be in relationship to him. He wants our obedience, but he doesn't command or force it because Jonah just walks away. So we can also do that. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. <laughs> so the first word arise implies where is Jonah's position when we find him at the beginning of the story. If God has to tell him to get up, it means he's either laying or sitting. He's lounging. He's not doing the work God's called him to do says, go to Nineveh. So God has commands him here to do two things. He has to go to Nineveh, and then he has to cry out against it or rebuke Nineveh. So go and preach, same command God's given to every one of us. We're not different than Jonah in this. We're supposed to go, and we're supposed to talk about our faith to other people. 
So we have those two things. Matthew uh, um, 28, verse 19, is that, go therefore and teach all nations. It's the command we've been given by Jesus himself. So God gives that same command to Jonah. Nineveh, the great city, this is where I'm going to geek out. We have to know the context in these first two sentences. So it's time to learn about the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. Uh, it is at this period in history, when you're looking at that uh, 700, 750 BC, it is one of the mightiest cities in the world. It's grown huge. They took a ton of their technology from Egypt. So they started using irrigation. The irrigation led to food. Food led to hundreds of thousands of people gathering in this area called Nineveh. Um, it is, in the Hebrew, the abode of Ninus. Uh, Ninus is the great and mighty or high and proud. It's the abode of the proud or the place where they live. It's not that God's great, but it's the world's greatness. And it is the great city is kind of what it's called, but in a very worldly sense. Nineveh is also noted by the Greek historian Herodotus. Uh, and when Herodotus writes about it in 750 BC, it's a thriving city. But not very long after that, it almost disappears off the map. But that's a story about Hezekiah that we'll get to later. But at this point in history, where Egypt was the mightiest empire in the world, Assyria is the new rising mightiest empire in the world. They dwarf Israel in size geographically and in population and in combat, which we'll get to in a bit. The Bible names Nimrod as the builder of Nineveh, also a mighty hunter. So part of what Nimrod was known for is he could fight things. All the kings of the Assyrians then had to show themselves to be mighty hunters. So Ashurbanipal, one of the things he would do is he kept lions and he would pull the lions out when the court was assembled and he would fight lions to prove how tough he was. So this is the culture of the Assyrians. Nimrod in Genesis 10 verse 8 is the mighty rebel hunter uh, that became mighty on the earth and he founded another city that we've heard of called Babylon. But when the Tower of Babylon fell, what happened to Nimrod? Jewish historians believe Nimrod went north and west and founded another city called Nineveh. So this is the second kind of thing. And of course, he's not alive at this point in history. Uh, but Assyria then becomes the land of Nimrod. Or in Micah 5.6, Nimrod is there and you have the same core word in Nimrod, Ninus, the Hebrew word, and Nineveh. So we have that nin part at the beginning, and that makes you think, well, what's that there for? In literature, we see lists of kings that go all the way through in Assyria. We have libraries of Assyrian records that we can read through. So there's tons of Assyrian stuff. Like the Egyptians, they wrote stuff down. So part of what we see in the Assyrian records confirm or match what we see in the biblical records. They're just written from a different point of view. So likely... Ninus and Nimrod were shortened then to Nimrod being, or mighty, being puffed up. And then Nineveh is part of where we get that name. So it turns into a phrase. We would say, in the Jewish Bible, they would say something mighty, like Genesis 10.9. That person is mighty, like Nimrod, which means they're mighty by the world standards. So we would see Dwayne Johnson, the rock, and we'd say that person's mighty like Nimrod. And that was just a phrase that the Jewish people used. So Nimrod, the founder of Nineveh, becomes this worldly power, much like its founder. Uh, Assyria is going to be an ongoing enemy of God's people. Um, 
and they kind of are north and east of Israel in that whole teria, territory. Uh, it is a curse. So I want to jump to Nahum chapter 3 and read you just another perspective on Assyria before we get into that and talk a little bit about how cruel these people were. Because we don't understand Jonah's reason for rebellion unless we understand that city and why he didn't want to go there. So here's what Nahum 3.1 says. Woe to, gives it a nickname, the bloody city. It's full of lies, robbery, its victims never depart, the noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of chattering chariot, of clattering chariots, the horsemen charged with the bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a number, great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpus, corse, corpses, and I'll tell you about that in a sec, because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and her family through her sorceries. The kind of rebellion happening in Nineveh is of violence and sex. And those two things become the fascination of the Assyrians. And it's how they build their empire. So it's puffed up, it's vain, it's mighty in that respect. You can do whatever you want when you're in Nineveh. It's like Vegas, only with way more violence, right? So Nineveh is that kind of place. And it started to attract people from all over the ancient world. And its economy then blossomed. So when it comes to Nimrod and Nineveh, it's not the kind of place that good Jewish people went, right? And it's not the kind of place that's likely to repent by any worldly fleshly standards. Let's be realistic. New York's not going to repent tomorrow. But what if you're called to go to New York? Would you go thinking you could convert the entire city? Because that's what's going to happen. Xenophon passed by the city in 600 BC, 100, 150 years after um, Herodotus did, and he saw an absolute desolate hill. Nothing was left in 150 years. The entire city was devastated and gone. So it may be that Jonah saw that image or that prophecy, knowing that that city was going to be destroyed. And that God was, at some point, God will have enough with this city and take it off the earth just like he did Babylon and the Tower of Babel. Like there is a point at which God's not going to have that kind of enemy on the border of Israel. And so that's where we're at. <laughs> so I told you about Ashurbanipal, the guy who fought lions. He's one of the kings. Um, the cuneiform that's really similar to Egyptian cuneiform. And I'll share this with you too. Jewish tradition says that when Moses left Egypt and the armies of Pharaoh were gone, it says the armies of Pharaoh were destroyed, but it doesn't say that Pharaoh was destroyed. So one belief of the Jewish people is that he was too ashamed to go, to go back home to Egypt. So he left and he went to Assyria and he was one of the people that helped found and build Assyria. So it is believed that that could be what happened. There's nothing in the Bible that counter contradicts that. But one thing that does support it is the similarities in the cuneiform or the writing styles that they had. It's like all the Egyptian technology just picked up out of Egypt and moved to Assyria. So they have, the Jewish people do believe, or that some of the Jewish traditions believe that could be what's happening. It could also be why uh, Assyria reacts so much when one of God's prophets shows up at the doorstep. And that's why Jewish people believed it. When Moses showed up to Pharaoh and said, repent, 
let my people go, and Pharaoh didn't listen, it went really bad for Pharaoh. So if it's the same character that's ruling Assyria, and Jonah comes walking up saying, repent, it could be that the king just says, okay, I believe that Yahweh is going to destroy me if I don't. So again, none of that's biblical. It's just Jewish tradition. It says in verse 2 that what we're supposed to notice about this city in verse 2 is how wicked it was. So because we're all grown-ups, and this is super cool geekiness, I want to tell you exactly how wicked Assyria was. One of the things wicked uh, Assyria is known for is they invented torture. Like, they got creative with it. Like, we like to eat food and find diff- different recipes. These folks like to play with torture and see just how much pain the human body could endure, and they like to do it on public display for all to see. It would have been a terrifying place to live. Um, they had a cultural war, and in, in their own writing, they bragged about it. This is part of it, too. A lot of cultures don't brag about their violence and meanness. They kind of hide that, you know, like the CIA. They kind of put it in a corner and don't show it off to the world. Assyria wrote all about it. They bragged about what they did because they thought it was so wonderful. They started to do amputations. They would gouge people's eyes out, and then they would let them wander on the streets helpless as a, a symbol of what it looks like to defy the king. So they would do disfigurements for the same reason. They invented impalements while people were still alive. And instead of impaling them so that they would die, they figured out how to impale them on a tree so that they wouldn't die right away. They would die slowly. So they didn't use sharp tips. They would use blunt tips so that it would slowly move its way through the body as the weight was on it. It's horrible. The way in which Assyrians did mass executions on stakes was copied by Vlad Tepes, who later got called Count Dracula. When they were trying to scare off the Muslims from coming up into Europe, they used the same tactics as the Assyrians because they could see all the Assyrian records on how to do it. So the idea was terror. It was psychological warfare, because if you were scared of the Assyrians, you wouldn't fight the Assyrians. Everything was about terror and fear. They invented crucifixion. The Romans perfected it, but they didn't invent it. The Assyrians did. They would burn people alive. That was another thing they played with, and bragged about it, and drew pictures about it. So they would flay people, and this is important because they had a thing with their god where they thought their god was a fish man. We'll talk about that a little bit too. So they would flay human beings just like they would flay fish and to see if they were a a fish person. Ashurbanipal II would brag about doing this. He did it so much that he covered the city walls with human skin in order to just demonstrate. So they would conquer people and they would do this to them. Horrible people. Horrible people. There was a problem when they would flay people that people would scream. Well, the Assyrians had a solution for that. They would cut the tongue out before they would flay the person so they wouldn't have to hear the screams. They would do bone grinding. (laughs) This is the worst. And decapitation, but they would put the two together and they would build entire pyramids in their cities out of human heads. They would, on their holidays, decorate their trees with bone sprinkles and human skulls, making the first kind of Christmas trees in the Assyrian Empire. So this is the kind of people they were. And I'm going to quote Ashurbanipal um, as he copies 
Jewish sacrificial practices around the lamb. Remember when we studied the lamb and the beautiful symbolism of sacrifice of the innocent for our guilt and that substitutional atonement? And when the Jewish people do it, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's a loving God. Here's how the Assyrians do it. I entered the city. Its inhabitants I slaughtered like lambs. Further, I will hack up their flesh and carry it with me to show it off in other countries. These are the Assyrians. This is the world that humans create when they're left without God. And it's, it's, it's ugly. So God says in verse 2, their wickedness has come up. The Hebrew their word is actually Ra, which is one of the Egyptian gods. Their wickedness is an absolute plural intensive word. In other words, it's like all of their badness has come up before me. So everything I just mentioned is a stink to God on the earth. This is ugly, horrible humanity at its worst. Total dominance, total oppression. Uh, people complain about the United States right now, but it wasn't Nineveh, not even close. So when you walk up to Nineveh, think of Jewish law to not touch a dead thing or not. Jonah can't even go into this city without touching bone grinding dust that lines the streets and skulls made into pyramids and walls covered in human skin. The entire city stinks. It's unclean. And for a Jewish person that's trying to be holy before God, you don't go into Nineveh. It's like going into the underworld or going into death itself. It says, um, <laughs> it says before me, which we've seen a lot as we've gone through the Old Testament. It's the word panim. It means up in my grill. So the wickedness came up before me. And when it says come up there, <laughs> Uh, it is to, it implies something that smells bad that comes up out of the human body into God's face. Assyria and Nineveh are like vomit in my face, is what he's saying in verse two. It's time to deal with them. And Jonah's, uh, of course, got two jobs. He has to go there and he has to actually tell them to repent. Theologically, everything we do gets seen by God even if God's allowing it for a season. That's a tough thing because you can get as bad as Nineveh and God's watching it and he sees it and the things we do and the things we think in our hearts are things that come up before the face of God. So our behaviors matter and I was just kind of thinking of that. So <laughs> the word cry out, kara, is to proclaim, announce, or call out. With Joshua, they're told to march in science in silence with Jonah, he's told to cry out. Sometimes God asks us to do different things. You know, because we had them walk, marching around Jericho in total silence and then they blow the trumpets. Here, he's supposed to go in and cry out or be a street preacher. He's supposed to go in and just start yelling at people, right? So how will that go in the city of Nineveh? He knows what they do to people. This is terrifying. And I'm not trying to excuse Jonah because he disobeys God and that's bad. But he's walking into certain death if he goes to Nineveh. And he's a failed prophet at the beginning of it. He kind of knows he's on God's bad side a little bit. And maybe he's just thinking God's just going to send me to my death. And I'm kind of, God's kind of done with me because I gave bad advice to King Jeroboam. My career's over. It's all done. God's really just trying to end me right now. And here's the other thing for Jonah. Again, I'm not trying to make tons of excuses for him. Just a couple excuses. If this is going to be the end of his career, then he's really not going to be remembered for anything. And at this point, not one Jewish prophet has been called to go to the Gentiles. 
every prophet has gone to Israel, 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 the holy nation that God's created. So for Joshua to be told to leave, it's like his career's over. He just got fired. So all of this is spinning around in his head, and we're only on two sentences into this book. But you have that much stuff going on for a Hebrew reader. Verse 3, but Jonah. This is not a but God book. Stuff likes the but gods. Things are going bad, and then it says but God. And it changes everything when God steps in. This is the other way around. It's but Jonah. Um, arose, so he does get up. That's obedient. To flee, that's not obedient. To Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So the prophet of God, second only to King Jeroboam, leaves and goes the other way when God tells him to do something. Gath Heifer's in the northern kingdom. This is another little piece. Nineveh's in the east. He goes west. Tarshish is a Phoenician city off the coast of Spain. He's literally going the other direction. And VeggieTales covers that point very well. They even show a little map. Um, the command is clear. Jonah's response is also clear. Heck no, I'm not going that way. So he picks up and leaves and goes the other way. So God's trying to work with Jonah. Jonah's not responding to God. So he does this. It says a rose to flee. Uh, with, he does it with intent. This is premeditated disobedience. He, it implies he rose physically, but also that spiritually, that rose is kind of a general term. So he rose up against God, both physically and spiritually, to do the opposite thing. So his will rises, and God's not going to come in there. It's a very particular kind of defiance. He went, he found a boat, he paid for the boat, and then he went again. Do you see those verbs in that sentence? Went, found, paid, went. Jonah's willfully acting against God's will. And this is a major doctrine of free will in the Bible. We have free will. Because here's a prophet of God doing the exact opposite of what God told him to do. So when people try to say that there's some sort of predestination on our decisions, that's theological dancing. Right? We have a great example here of a man of God being told to do something by God. He rises his will up against God, and God allows defiance. The bigger question is, why does God allow defiance? He could just force every one of us to do what he wants. But he doesn't do that because he wants a relationship with us, not a puppet. So the story so far has nothing to do with the fish. It's about Jonah and God, right? That's the premise. And Jonah and God's relationship. So... Some questions, and I, I hope some answers are already coming out. Why does Jonah defy God? That's the big question. One, this is a really difficult calling that he's given him, a la all the, the Nineveh stuff. Maybe he's scared of being rejected or killed by the Ninevites, so maybe it's fear that he doesn't want to do it. Um, <laughs> one last piece. Later on, the Assyrians actually do conquer the northern kingdom, so they don't repent forever. So, and when they conquered the northern kingdom, Bath, uh, the, the city that he's from, was it Bath Gefer? Would have been in that northern kingdom area. The city Jonah grew up in as a child would have been raided by the Assyrians. He would have seen their horrors growing up. In all likelihood, he knew people that had been killed by the Assyrians. So another reason he might have not gone up there is flat out hatred. He could have deeply hated these people for killing maybe even close relatives of his growing up. 
You would have known them. You would have known how they do things. When they haul away the northern kingdom, they have big, long chains with hooks on them, and they would run the hook through the flesh of the Israelites and haul them away on hook. So they would be hooked on that whole path. So there's a long history here that he's responding to. Towns in northern Israel and in other parts of the area around Assyria, when they knew the Assyrians were coming, often the entire town would commit suicide together because it was better to die than to be killed by the Assyrians because they didn't just kill you, they did way worse than just killing you. So horrible situations. So Gath Heifer was in range of the Assyrian Empire and raiding parties from the Assyrian Empire. Um, Nineveh is then the capital of everything that's anti-God. And, you know, for us, it'd be the equivalent of saying, why don't you go to the atheist convention next week and tell them all to repent, right? And Jonah might have laughed. So that's a third reason, is that it could have just been the ridiculousness of this whole thing. This is ridiculous. That's not going to work, God. So it could have been pride is the fourth reason. If Jonah's second to the king, what does it mean when he has to go talk to Gentiles? It's like he's getting demoted. So it could be that Jonah's just, Jonah's just like, I quit. You can Here's my two-week notice. I'm going to Tarshish. It's a nice vacation city. I'm going to retire there. And it could just be that he's trying to retire. So there might also have been a pride in Israel because he knew that Jeroboam was an evil king and not repenting, despite the fact that Jonah had been trying to get him to turn the right way his whole life. And maybe now that Jonah knows God well enough to know that maybe God's taking his blessing off of the children of Israel and he's going to bless the Assyrians instead. Like, what if he's doing that? And God doesn't tell Jonah what he's doing, but Jonah might have said, no, Israel's going to be the children of God. If I go to Nineveh and they all repent and they become your children, when Israel doesn't, think of how embarrassing that is for all the Hebrews. So it could be just like he was playing for the home team here, and if he took himself out of the equation, maybe God's will wouldn't get done, but he has much to learn about God in that sense. So he doesn't run from Israel. He runs from the presence of the Lord. This is kind of silly, right? You can't really run from the presence of God because God's everywhere. But that's part of what this book teaches, especially when Jewish people would read it on Yom Kippur, is that God's everywhere. You can't run from God. You can try, but it's going to create stories like this. Um, so we do see multiple times through the Bible people trying to run from God. So this is a theme, people thinking that they can. Genesis 3.8, Adam and his wife try to hide themselves from the presence of God. Genesis 4.13, Cain, the very next generation, leaves the presence of God. Leviticus 22.3, God can cut off his soul or his presence in the tabernacle when the people of God are unclean. So outside the presence of God in Leviticus 22.3 is actually a possibility. Job 1 and 2, Satan leaves the presence of God to go do Satan's work. And he leaves that presence. Psalm 97 and 116, all the earth trembles at God's presence. So this is a tough theological idea. Can you leave God's presence or can't you? Because the Bible kind of says both in different situations and in different contexts. I'll leave that debate up to you because I'm not smart enough to figure it out. What I do know is this. Acts, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, all call this our ultimate place of re refreshment. The presence of God is the goal for all of us. 
So if there is such a thing as not being in the presence of God, that would be hell. And if there is such a thing as being in the presence of God, that's heaven. So 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope, our joy, and our crown of rejoicing? Are you not even in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? That's the goal, is to be there when that happens. Biblically, the idea of leaving God's presence is a human idea or a satanic idea. It's evil when you do that. The reality is God's omnipresence, but he can turn his face from his believers. So for God to turn away from you is a bad thing. Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there in your hand shall you lead me. Perhaps a reference to Jonah. And your right hand shall hold me. You can't escape the presence of God. Psalm 139. So this is a tough idea. You can't escape the presence of God, but God can remove his presence from you. And that can happen. Where does Jonah go? He goes to the uttermost parts of the sea and Tarshish is heading off to Spain. So we see Jonah not listening to God, trying and intentionally trying to react to God with a different plan. And our plans then often go the opposite direction of God's plans. This for me is really like a, I love this point. Whenever I make plans, they tend to be the opposite direction of God's plans. The closer and more mature I get in my faith, the more my plans align with God's plans. But that's super tough to get there. The instinct of the flesh is to go the opposite way from the way God wants us to go. And Jonah's just a model or an image of that. Um, so they head that way. There's a connection here when it says Joppa in that sentence. There's a connection to the New Testament. Jonah is called to preach to the outsiders and he runs from Joppa to do that. Simon Peter is called to teach the Gentiles and he goes, he goes from Joppa to teach Cornelius the Gentile. So we have a nice little, there's lots of this in Jonah where things we see in the New Testament should remind a Hebrew reader of the story of Jonah. Joppa is a big city and it has to do with preaching to the Gentiles. Simon on one occasion is called by his full name by Jesus Christ in Matthew 16, 17. Some of you already know this. Do you know Simon Peter's full name? Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So when, when Jesus does that, he's also reminding us that Peter and Jonah have some similarities. They both make mistakes. They go the wrong direction. They have some issues. They both take the word of God to the Gentile world. And that's kind of their calling and what they're going to do. But Peter's going to be a rock on which the church is built. Jonah's a putz who never really gets it. Right? So we'll see both of those. But he had a plan. He paid the fare. It's, it's a causal thing. He bought the ticket. Um, because he found the ticket is the reason he buys it. Uh, the circumstance then justifies the action. Humans do this all the time. Well, it must be God's will because it was there in front of me. Can you, have you ever done that yourself? Or maybe we just know friends that have done that, right? Well, it, must, it was an opportunity. It must be God giving us that opportunity. We love hearing that. We like it when people have the opportunity to do things that are pretty much their flesh wants to do it. It must be that the Lord wanted me to do the escape room, honey, because I was driving home and there was a sign saying, you should do an escape room. So I stopped and did the escape room. Even if it's in the right direction, 
we spoil it if we do it on our will versus God's will. It's not always the case that just because there's a ticket to buy to go to Tarshish that you buy the ticket to go to Tarshish. Joppa then is, is, is stands out in that kind of way. <laughs> this is the problem, and I'd say Jonah is a really great book for this. All Jonah is doing is acting on his feelings. He's making decisions based on what he wants and what he thinks he wants. And he's making decisions even though God's clearly giving him direction to do something else. God's word doesn't matter when our feelings come into play. And in this light, feelings throughout the Bible are very dangerous things. And they're often called the flesh because it's what we feel or what we want in our gut. Maturity stops us from doing things that our flesh wants us to do. So when you're born and you have to go to the bathroom, you just let her fly, right? But as you grow up, the diapers get annoying. And suddenly you think, I could be more mature and not just do what my feelings tell me to do in the given moment. So part of humanity itself is the restraint of feelings to not poop in our pants. And we learn it very early in life. But our spiritual walk is the same way too. Immature believers tend to keep doing things that put them in the poop house in the first place. But you have to kind of grow out of that. And we call it backsliding and maturing in the faith and going that direction. So we have feelings. We can see the candy, but we don't have to eat the candy. One diet I did that didn't last very long, as you can see, is that I decided I would just start smelling the food instead of eating the food. And that went really well for a while because you can be like, ah, I love the aroma. I like the smell. I've got it. I'm good. And that, I think I went two months on that. And then at some point you'd, you'd realize you should just eat better food. Um, another argument for this is Jonah might have rationalized it to himself saying, well, surely if God asked me to do something that preposterous, he knew I was going to go to Spain. Like he knew I was going this direction anyways. And that's another spiritual game we play with ourselves when we're defying God. So I feel like this sin, God must expect me to do the sin. So therefore he's ready to forgive me for my sin. When what God tells you to do is to be holy because he's holy. Stop sinning. And you need God to help do that. So Jonah's going to learn that in his feelings, he needs God to help him to overcome those feelings to do what he's supposed to do. So we can see in the book of Jonah this bait and switch of feelings. Jonah's doing what he wants, but he's going the opposite direction of the way he should go. He can Feelings in this snapshot are well thought out. He goes to a port, he finds a ship, he buys a ticket, he boards it. So there's nothing unthoughtful about his feelings. So we can deliberately and rationally conduct our feelings and not be in the will of God. They can be difficult physically to do what we're supposed to do. And it can be like in the New Testament, it's called, you know, God says to Paul, why, why are you still kicking against the goads? So very difficult physically, but spiritually it's, it's, it's superior than what's hard. I think a drug addiction like that, how hard that is on your body, how tough it is, but spiritually, well, I just like doing it. And that gets to be real, it can be, it, you can devastate your own body doing that. Eating disorders are like that too. Your feelings can dominate to the point where you're absolutely wrecking your body and doing something that's, that's hurtful to yourself. But spiritually, it's easier than doing what's healthy. Does this make sense? Jonah's doing all of that in this decision. They can be super costly. Jonah has to pay a fare. So he's actually giving money and resources to doing this thing. Uh, so, but, but they don't have any value. 
They can be done in the name of sacrifice, but be totally selfish. And we see that in the church often, right? So the worst thing here is that feelings can be done in the name of God, but be totally contrary to God's will. And we see that too. It's a dangerous route that we see in some of the theologies that are out there today. All you got to do is have the, the right emotional setting and God will move in your spirit and awesome things will happen. Name it and claim it. And if you can just feel that enough, you can somehow, what, God put God on your puppet strings and make it happen that way? God's given his word. He's told us what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, and what our job is in that setting. So you have to set aside the flesh and do what God's put in his word to do. And that's not easy, and Jonah gives us this really nice example of that. So that's the first three verses. Uh, so the first image of Jonah is a guy going the wrong way. And, and I've been there, and I know I, in that sense I can relate to Jonah, and that's why I make up all these excuses for why Jonah's doing what he's doing. Because in Jonah's head, all of that stuff I listed, the Assyrians, Nineveh, all that stuff, it all adds up to him making the right decision to go to Tarshish. And when we go through life, it doesn't matter how much of that stuff is there, it can lead us to make the wrong decision. Because the world will stack up reasons not to do what God's will, and God will not push harder than giving us what he wants us to do. And so ultimately that becomes a fight in our lives. Verse 4, we get to the first miracle. But the Lord sent out, so those words mean this is a miracle, this is not a natural storm. God made this storm happen. God sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up, kind of like inner tubing with Dwayne. <laughs> then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God, small g, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. When sailors who make their money delivering cargo have to throw the cargo, they're doing it to save their lives. There's nothing short of that. You don't throw the cargo. You throw you know, Jonah, but you don't throw the cargo. So these are good sailors. They're not throwing the people. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. This guy's a lazy bum. We found him at the beginning of the book sleeping and we find him now sleeping. No, this is not a parallel to Jesus resting in the storm, right? Very different situation. The Lord sent, so he really is making this storm happen. It's God's intervention. The storm is supernatural, and he's preparing the other miracles, but in this one, he sends the storm. And I think that's an interesting point, not a huge point, but when we get to the other miracles, he prepared the great fish. But in this one, he sent the storm. It's like he's chasing after Jonah, pursuing Jonah. Verse 5, the mariners are afraid. When you don't have God in your life and a supernatural storm shows up, you should be afraid. Um, the first group of people to align themselves with God around Jonah are going to be these sailors. So we get this great image in chapter one of what I think one of the big reasons are that people get saved. Storms happen in life and life isn't easy and you turn to God because God's burden is light and easy. And there's joy and freedom happens in a second when you vow to follow God. Instant change in your life. And so for some people, all it takes to choose to follow God is a storm. And things happen and you realize, I've tried everything I can do. I've thrown the cargo overboard and there's nothing left but death or God. So I love this idea that the mariners are afraid 
and that the fear of God leads some people to God. And in each chapter, we're going to get a different group of people coming to God for a different, totally different reason. And this first one's kind of a big deal. So there is a place in the kingdom of God for a fire and brimstone kind of thing. If you don't accept God, you're going to drown in your, this life that you're creating for yourself. It's a desperate clinging to a God. And I think that's, watch the progression of the sailors as we go. In verse five, they're all crying out to their gods, small g, like whatever God you can make up, cry out to it, see if it works, you know? If you're struggling in life, you know, cry out to the Minnesota Vikings, see if they save you. Uh, or if your favorite musician, see if they come to your aid. Or if you have a movie star that you like or, you know, that next Marvel movie is coming out, you go pray to Marvel and see if they, if it does any good with the storms in your life. See if any of these things we worship have any sort of impact on life itself. So, and in this case, you know, they're worshiping Neptune and Nimrod and all these other fish people and things like that. So they cry out to their gods. Um, by the way, I don't think that's just superstitious, dumb people in the ancient world. A lot of times we write off the ancients as just being superstitious. If you have a supernatural storm hit you, it is completely rational to pray to your gods, right? And the sailors are not stupid because they're sailors. They know the difference between a normal natural storm and a supernatural storm. So their initial reaction as smart, intelligent sailors is this is an unnatural storm and they start praying immediately. So I, I think that when we see verse five, we should be respecting the fact that these sailors know that sea, they know what a normal storm looks like, and they know that there's something different about this. And verse five says they were afraid, and they started to cry out to their gods. So that's something that sailors do when this is, this has to be quite a storm, uh, kind of a, an amazing thing. So I thought of testing this, by the way. I thought of test, like, going out to popular like figures and texting them when I had spiritual problems. Feeling kind of down today, Ben Affleck, would you pray for me? You know, and I thought that might be kind of neat and see if Ben Affleck responds by coming to my aid and doing that. Who knows, maybe he would. Um, I think in life, this is a great moment for people and it's part of what brings them into the kingdom is when they find that things don't get fixed by all the things they've spent their time on. Poker night with the guys does not solve my problems. Even things that are normally just wonderful things, like watching sports or going fishing. But fishing doesn't feed your soul the way God feeds your soul. It can be relaxing and nice. You can even commune with God while you do it. But if you worship it, it doesn't heal. So they throw the cargo, verse 5. They turn to physical, self-destructive solutions in this massive effort to do things. This is where things tend to elevate when you're worshiping the wrong stuff. Is If you can double down on that stuff and it becomes self-destructive. The number of comic books I bought became self-destructive to my marriage. And my wife is like, why are you buying all these comic books? That didn't last very long because I kind of grew out of the comic books, but it took me a while. And I, I would shrink it down. Well, let me just get my favorite one every week. Self-destruction is usually indicative of a false god and a false worship when we do that. This covers all psychological problems that we have in the world that we try to fix in the psychological world. Self-destruction mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physical is almost always someone worshiping a false god. They're putting something else at the head of their life that at the end of the day becomes self-destructive. 
because they're not putting God first in their life. So you try to lighten the load. Self-destruction can get easier for some times, but it tends to get to be disastrous in the end. Alcoholics that will go dry for a year and then go right back to it. And when they go back to it, it gets worse than when they came to it in the first place. So it becomes this kind of secular process where it's like, I know this isn't good for me, but I really like to do it. And you pine for it when you're not doing it, which means you're still worshiping it. And it kind of gets to be one of those kinds of things. Anyways, so they're in this situation. <laughs> Jonah's in the bottom of the boat. He has gone down in the boat. He has lain down in the boat. And now he's fast asleep in the boat. Where should a man of God be in this situation? Shouldn't he be witnessing to the people worshiping false gods all around him in the middle of a storm? Shouldn't he be proclaiming God's faithfulness and love while everyone's in fear and panic around them? Isn't that the moment for believers to stand? Look at Elijah in 1 Kings 18. He stands among 450 priests of Baal surrounding him everywhere. And Baal, he kind of dares them, like, well, you know, put some put some stuff on it. Like, tell Baals that you need to, they need to show up. And he rubs it in. And I love this. This is Elijah not being a nice guy. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry louder for maybe the God is sleeping or your God's meditating. Or maybe he's busy or maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping and he has to get woken up. This is Elijah making fun of the priests of Baal. I love these moments because I resonate with that. Let's make fun of idiots because if that helps them get closer to God, great, but they have to see the worthlessness of their gods before they can turn to Yahweh. So when Elijah does that, he's standing and he's saying to them exactly what we're all as readers saying to Jonah, wake up. What are you doing? Why are you down there? And we should feel that way. So instead of gleefully pointing out the ridiculousness of the sailors worshiping Poseidon, Jonah's down doing, you know, playing computer games in the bottom of the boat. He's just not at the table with these folks. So they're sleeping. Instead of being alive, Jonah's the one sleeping, and Elijah just flips that around. So we're not supposed to be happy with Jonah right now. Servants of God don't shut down when a crisis hits. False, failed, flunky, fake God people fall asleep when the crisis hits. Or they go hiding and, and take care of themselves. So we think when a believer defies God that they'll be tortured in their con conscience. But I'm seeing an example of, in the Bible where a believer that turns on the will of God is perfectly at sleep and at rest in the middle of a storm. This is not a guy tortured by his conscience. He's rationalized and convinced himself that he's doing what's right. Because he's not anxious. He's not worried. There's a storm outside the ship and he's sleeping like a baby in the bottom of the boat. So that image of like, if you if you turn from God, you'll be just wrestling your whole life. You know, like a Hallmark movie kind of thing? And the, and you just, until you come back to God, you just won't be comfortable. I don't, I don't agree with that at all. There's people that walk away from God and they are perfectly happy with themselves. And the enemy and the spiritual forces that are against God will help them to be comfortable in the middle of storms so that they're dulled into hell. And they just go that direction by not being tortured in their conscience. But they need to wake up. Spiritually, I believe the enemy uses false peace as a way to get people to be disobedient. 
Just because your life's going along swimmingly doesn't mean you're in the will of God. In fact, God actually promises trials and storms in your life. Start studying the word and commit to getting through the Bible. You will have trials and storms in your life. It's just going to happen. So it is more likely, or it can be likely, that sin actually puts us to sleep versus wakes us up. But I think that image of sin and the tortured soul is a very Hollywood image, but it's not necessarily biblical. And in my life experience, when I'm in sin, I often am not doing the work of the kingdom, and it can be, a, you know, it can be extremely restful. And Jonah's in that situation right now. That's where we find him. So sleeping believers is the second scene of Jonah. Um, he is sleeping. All the unbelievers are awake. And in verse 5, the second half, it says, but Jonah... The problem here isn't the wind, the tempest, or the storm. It's that the man of God is sleeping in the bottom of the boat. So he's gone down to the lowest parts. Uh, he's hiding, and he's avoiding the work that he should have. He could be rowing, and he could be helping the sailors right now. This is a grown man that could be helping in this situation. He's not helping out at all. He's, he's letting the lower people, the sailors, do all the menial work. Have you met prideful people that just do that? You know, they'll just let other, oh, I kind of did that after dinner. I went out on the dock, didn't I? So you can just look at me. Look at Dicker sitting out on the dock when the rest of us are cleaning up the meal, right? And so that happens. One, it gives us kind of an image that, that maybe Jonah's a little pompous, a little prideful um, to not be willing to pitch in and help. Uh, he's laying down. He's avoiding these kinds of situations. So, Yeah. Another thing Jonah could be doing to help right now as a prophet of God, he could be praying to his God, like all the sailors are doing with their gods. So another image of a, a, a person of God that's not even praying at a time when prayer is clearly needed. I, and, and sometimes we get into that too. We get into problems in life and we don't pray because we just, what, we don't think about it or we're not awake. We don't realize that it's a spiritual battle that we're fighting. So... Sometimes we get sleeping Christians that just don't show up. It's like they don't come to the prayer meeting and they just skip that part. But that's part of what should be doing here. And then last but not least, fast asleep. How sad that these religious sailors with their empty gods are wide awake and the prophet of the living God is fast asleep. Like the irony here should be waking us up alone. He's missing the chance to do all this. So... <laughs> I read one commentary that talked about how, but, but wait, we can do a lot while we're sleeping. We can sleep talk, we can sleep walk, we can, we can sleep laugh, we can even sleep think, we can even sleep write. I remember writing a college paper and then waking up and realizing I hadn't actually written any of it. It was like having to write the paper twice. When we're sleepwalking as Christians, it can feel like we're doing life, but we're really not. And at some point, we'll wake up and realize none of this, well, none of that stuff we thought we were doing was really in tune with the Lord God. And we'll get up there and say, but Lord, I prophesied in your name, and I, I slept walked in your name, and I slept talked in your name, and I slept witnessed in your name. And God will say, I don't even know you. And that's terrifying. And I forget the reference to that. Sorry about that. If we're going down and we're planning our own life, we're dreaming. If you submit your life and your will to God, you're awake. And it's very different to trust God with your life. Verse 6. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? He's even given him a nickname. 
Arise and call your God, and perhaps your God will consider us so that, they may, so that we may not perish. Like, it takes the sailors to wake up the prophet and tell him what he should be doing. Sometimes there's sinners in our life that beg us to stand up and be the real deal. And I pray for all of you to get that experience where you get somebody just saying, I need you to be a Christian. And I'm not a Christian, but I just want to see one real Christian in my life. And somebody that doesn't judge. And somebody that loves first. Someone that will speak the truth in grace even when I don't want to hear the truth. And for a lot of us, it took somebody that didn't care what we thought in order to tell us the truth about the kingdom so that we could get into the kingdom. And we should call them up and say, thank you. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have known that. So we find this the sailors, often known as rough and tough people, being more relevant than the prophet is at the beginning of this book. Perhaps your God will consider us is not a statement of faith from the sailors yet. So watch the progression with the sailors. At first, they're praying to their gods, but now they're asking Jonah to pray to his God. You ever had this situation? Somebody just says, why don't you pray for that? Because I know you and God are tight. I love that. Absolutely, I'll pray for that. But when it comes true, let's remember which God made that happen. And let's put Jesus up in front when we do that. So it's not a statement of faith, but it's a willingness by the Gentiles to invite Jonah to be part of the game. I think this is great. So he's on the ship to avoid God, and then he's got sailors asking him to pray to his God. This is great. The irony is beautiful. Jonah knows that for those that call on his name, they'll be saved. Because Jonah knows God. So he, don't miss the similarities here that we see in our walk of faith. But don't miss what's in the New Testament too. This is Mark chapter 4. Any Hebrew reader would know Jonah, would see the similarities in this situation. Mark chapter 4, verse 37. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? See the similarity, just small similarities to the book of Jonah? So they assume the worst of Jesus, that Jesus doesn't care, right? And he's not just sleeping. He's, this is a different kind of sleeping. But they're following what they heard in Jonah, that Jonah didn't care, and that's why he didn't come up on top. So we get a glimpse of Jewish kind of reading of this. But then he arose, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, peace, be still. I used to say this to the kids when they were like three, and it'd be like, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you don't have faith? And they feared him exceedingly and, one, and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I think Jesus did all of that on purpose because he knew they knew the story of Jonah. And he was showing them how the story of Jonah could have gone. Jonah could have just got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and God may or may not have just honored that. And a whole ship of, of Gentile sailors would get saved just like that. But that's not Jonah's calling. Jonah's calling is Nineveh. So they both have a storm that endangers the boat. They both have a sleeping hero. For Jonah, the point is that he's at fault in his sleeping and he rebukes himself uh, or gets rebuked by the captain. For Jesus, the point is that he has the power over the wind and seas. 
So same kind of premise, but very different endings. Jonah's sleeping and careless. Jesus is sleeping and very careful. And there's a contrast between those two. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we might know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Um, <laughs> so progressively with the sailors, we had them praying, we had them getting Jonah to pray. Now they're casting lots to see who's at fault. And we see a progressive failing of empty faith, worthless false gods. And this progressive kind of, they go from fear to prayer to destruction, and now they're trying to blame people. So we get this kind of pattern. Strong implication uh, that what's going on is God's using this to make things happen. That is not God saying that gambling is okay. So you could read that passage saying, well, God must love gambling. Um, God can use the superstitions of other people to get his will done. And we do see biblically that even the priest has the urum and the thumum where all things being equal, if you need a decision to be made, you can cast lots, draw straws. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not gambling. That's using a chance-based element to let God have his way, to say, all things are equal, Lord. I don't know which way to go. You can do it. My ancestors, when they came across from the East Coast, they had one uh, team of oxen and a wagon, and they were coming across uh, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin. At every branch in the road, it's just open territory. They didn't know which way to go. So they would pray, and then they would let the oxen have their head. And the oxen could pick which direction to go. And it took them right to Wyndham, Minnesota, and the oxen stopped. So they put their flag down and made the Grant family farm in Wyndham, Minnesota. So it is not gambling to use chance elements to ask God for his will. So God can speak through these things, uh, but that's not the same thing as trying to get rich by going to the casino and blowing all your money. So don't use this as justification for that. So God can honor even a misguided search for truth. I think of it this way. God can honor a childish faith. And these sailors using lots is almost a very childish kind of faith, and God can use that. Some storms are just storms. Some of them are really purposeful and spiritual. Sometimes it's a spiritual battle. Sometimes it's just the world being the world. And you have to do some discerning on that, which takes some maturity. But the lot falls on Jonah. <laughs> He's back in the game. He can't get away from God. Now here he is with the blame pointed at him. And in verse 8, they say to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? These are great questions. Unbelievers or Gentiles, when they're getting to know a Christian, tend to ask these kinds of questions, but they're missing the point. The question is, who do you serve? And they don't quite know how to ask that. This is great. So they're trying to figure out his allegiance, but they're doing it from a worldly perspective because they only know in part. So they know that when he says he's from, he's a prophet, his occupation, from Israel, where do you come from would be from, you know, the Midlands or from Jerusalem, Israel's his country, and of what people are you, the Hebrews? That Those four questions will identify him as Jonah the prophet because they'll be able to pick where he's at. It's like, what do you do for a living is the question we get. When somebody meets us, what do you do for a living? And that's not really the question to get to know me. Because what I do for a living isn't quite me. Does that make sense? 
Because Christians don't live by that. They live by who they serve. So they do all these theasi occupations. Uh, they don't know the who, what, where, and why of Jonah, which says something about how Jonah got on the boat. If somebody gets on my boat, don't I kind of want to know who they are? Wouldn't you think the sailors would know these things ahead of time? So they're assuming they were lied to or something, or maybe Jonah did lie when he got on the boat. But these are the building blocks of a story. Who are you? Where do you come from? What country are you from? Who are your people? A Christian might answer these, what's your occupation? I serve the living God. Where do you come from? I came from a life of sin. See how there's spiritual answers to these that tell our story too? What's your country? My country is the kingdom of God and it hasn't come yet. God's preparing it for me. This is not my world. And of what people are you? I'm with the Bible study people. I'm with the people of God. I'm with Jesus Christ. I'm with the church. Those are my people. So that's a tough thing to have when you have those discussions with your family is when you say things like, I'm going to hang out with my brothers and sisters. They say, where are your brothers and sisters? And it's like, yeah, in one sense, but these are the people I'm living life with and you're welcome to come and see. Like, come hang out with us and come to Bible study and see what it's all about. So they say to him, please tell us. Um, so he says to them and he answers their questions. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You see how he answers their questions? He's telling them who he serves. He's like, you caught me, here's who I am. Uh, being a Hebrew, he's a crosser. Um, he's, the Hebrews are world-renowned for this. That's what they were known for, that they entered that promised land, they crossed the Jordan. He's a person who comes, and he's, he's a crosser on a boat full of sailors that cross the Mediterranean every day. So that's, at the end of the day, Jonah reveals himself. He says, I fear the Lord, problem is right here is you can fear the Lord and that doesn't necessarily result in the right actions. So you can be a believer in someone who loves the Lord and fears the Lord and still not do as well. So it's truthful that he, he's fearing the Lord, but he's still running. So his will is greater than his fear of the Lord. This is a major biblical concept when they say he feared the Lord. Does the fear of the Lord overwhelm your decision to make your own, your, your own will and have that come out in front? So apparently, he's answering those questions. It says the God of heaven. Um, and Jonah explains that his God is the God of the sea and the dry land. In other words, the God he worships is the one that can help them right now. Because he's the God of where the rain's coming from and of the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, he explains how he was running. Uh, so there's more to the answer, but right here... It's that core answer of who he is. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's a proclamation of truth apart from what we've seen from Jonah so far in the book. So some interpreters believe this sentence is where Jonah repents, that he's turned right at this moment. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's essentially true and it's ultimately true. And Joseph's turn may have happened right here. This might be the, the moment where he turned and obeyed the Lord. At least it's the start of his road back because he at least proclaims and announces who he serves. What a good start. Um, then the men were exceedingly afraid. I'm going to argue, like as we go through this, I don't know if this is the kind of repentance that God's looking for. Like even Satan can believe that Yahweh is the God of the heavens and the earth. So even the enemy knows that and can say it, but not necessarily lovingly follow that same God. Does that make sense? 
So, and Jonah's still going to have some points of resistance all the way through chapter 4. Um, then the men, verse 10, were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So there was more to that answer. He explained the whole situation. Why have you done this? I like that the sailors speak a truth in that question, why have you done this? Joseph, or, or, I'm sorry, Jonah, I'm going to do that a lot, aren't I? Have I already done that a lot tonight? Not Joseph. That's another Bible study. Jonah, I'm doing just what Lisa does. You just get the first letter of the name, just make up a name. Jonah has been inactive in serving the Lord, but the sailors call it true. His inaction is actually a choice, and it's an action. To turn away from God is a choice, and it is a verb. So when they say, why have you done this? It's because Jonah's actions have actually done something. They've had consequence. So hiding out and sleeping at the bottom of the boat, that is a choice, and it is an action that people make. Um, Not doing God's will is a choice every day when we wake up. And sadly, a lot of us make that choice on the wrong side a lot. And we need to wake up the next day. Mercies of God are new every morning. And the next day we wake up, we do God's will. So there's a clarity with these sailors. I like that about my unbelieving friends. They're often very blunt and truthful. And I like that. And there's something very very pure about that kind of speech and language. And if you haven't hung around some sailors, blue collar, I'm guessing we've left out some colorful language in here, right? So these are lowly fishermen proclaiming the truth of Jonah's sin right to his face. Again, the contrast there should stand out. Even the unbeliever knows enough about God to know that rejecting God's a bad idea. If you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian. Don't be half a Christian or say you're a Christian and then not live by your own morals. That inconsistency is a horrible thing for the reputation of the church. Don't be a Christian and then be cruel to people. That's horrible. Why resist God when you claim to fear God? Why would you run from God when you say that you're his servant? Don't do that. And the sailors just call it out truthfully. And God's working through these sailors to speak truth to Jonah from people that Jonah probably didn't think very highly of. Verse 11, then they said to him, notice Jonah doesn't even respond. They're just pounding him right now. Why'd you do this? And then they go in the next sentence too. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? Like, they're thinking, do we torture him? Do we cut his feet off? Do we hang him over the boat? Like, walk the plank is going to be the option. For the sea was growing more tempestuous. It's like God's pushing them on. Like, they're having this conversation, and it's just chaos all over the place. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. (laughs) So it implies that this concert of the sailors barking at him, God making the storm speak. Because you imagine the sailors like, is this you? And and then God answers with a huge blast on the boat. They all get their grip again. Why would you do this? And then it hits again. It's almost like God is having a conversation with them. Option one of what Jonah is doing here. Option one is this is totally selfish. Throw me overboard. I want to die anyways. God was sending me to my doom in Nineveh. I was going to run away and retire, but I might as well just die. I'm not good for anything. So it could be that his fatalism is showing here. Option two, he is honestly being sacrificial. If you throw me in, that's what God wants. God thinks that little of me that he wants to send me to my death. 
and I didn't go to Nineveh like I was told. So if you jump in the sea, he's actually sacrificing himself to save the sailors. So that's a viable option here. Um, if that's the case, um, you have an image of a sacrificial Jew giving his life up so that Gentiles can live. So that's kind of a cool thought. But here's option three. He's just throwing himself to the Lord's care. Option three is that he's honestly repented back in that sentence. And now he's like, you know what? If I just throw myself into the sea, God's the God of the sea, I'll end up where God wants me to end up. And he's honestly just thinking God can take him. And then you've got an image of baptism, right? I'm going to go under the water. I'm going to come up out of the water and I'm God's servant again. So option four, <laughs> fighting God at some point dissembles the psychology to the point where he's suicidal, right? And that could be what's going on here. There's a lot of could-bes with Jonah, which is why this is a great story to kind of talk with people about life because rabbis could use this story. But ultimately, death becomes better than fighting God. I'd rather just die. This is a really sad place to be. And it's kind of a, a place that I think people can get when they're bitter or they've led an unfruitful life or when you run out of friends, which Jonah has at this point. It's a commentary on this shows all of these different readings have been taught by Jewish rabbis, Christian teachers, priests. Throughout history, Jonah's been used to teach any of those kind of patterns. Uh, I think we can see Jonah here is entirely the character that we want to paint on Jonah that reflects ourselves. At what point in your life do you resist God and how do you play that out in your life? And you can use that in this image and see what it looks like. We can see Jonah resisting God. We can see Jonah submitting to God. We can see Jonah sacrificing himself. Or we can just see him going nuts because he's crazy. So at the end of the day, Jonah deserves everything he's about to get because he's living in defiance. And he recognizes that and gives himself over to it. So note that Jonah never actually prays in this chapter never just asks God for what to do. So I would suggest he should actually consult God. And part of where I get this from is because we are studying Joshua. And part of what Joshua learns in the beginning of Joshua is consult God before you do anything. Prophets should know that. So he doesn't consult God. There's no indication of any intercessory prayer. He just does nothing and he gives himself over to the sea. Okay. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. These guys are awesome. Wouldn't you just throw this guy in the sea? But no, they're going to try to save his life. They're going to row anyways, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. I like that the storm has a personality. It's been personified here. So they reject the offer to kill Jonah. They are then showing more moral character than Jonah does. Jonah's willing to risk their life and fall asleep in their boat but they're willing to try to save his life and give up their own. So maybe they don't want to kill a prophet because they respect God's prophet um, and they have more mercy for Jonah than Jonah then has for Nineveh. It's a huge contrast. The effort fails. It gets worse. They can't save themselves. Verse 14. Therefore the sailors, they the sailors, cried out to the Lord. You see the progression? We pray, O oh Lord, and they are using Yahweh at this point. Please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as have done as it pleased you. 
Okay, so the sailors were praying to their God, small g. Now they're praying to the God, capital G. That salvation transition here is implied. We now see the sailors have changed. And they're changing because of the storms of this world. They're changing because God brought trials into their life. And they're repenting even though Jonah is not even praying. This is fabulous. They're not coming to the Lord because Jonah did anything. They're just coming to the Lord because God does all the work. And Jonah's just there to watch. He can't stop being a prophet because God's just raising up new Christians all around him. It's kind of amazing how he does this. So they understand the consequence of their sin is, is death, and they, they are thinking they're getting charged with innocent blood. Like, don't let us be guilty of, of your prophet dying. So they're proclaiming Jonah innocent, even though Jonah doesn't proclaim himself innocent. I love these contrasts. I think these are just really fit. And they submit to God's will. God will submit to whatever you want. So basically, they model for Jonah how Jonah should have behaved on this sailing trip. The storm is an absolute miracle because it changes lives. And these people repent. So Jonah gets to see the sailors turn to God. It's like God's showing Jonah that he can do anything with anyone whenever he wants. It's like God's trying to coach Jonah and say, look, I don't need you. I want you. I don't have to have you do this. I'm choosing to have you witness my salvation when it comes on Gentiles. So Jonah gets to see that. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah, they throw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. It's like the indication here, the implication here is that it just stopped. The word ceased there is it just ended. It, it honestly just converted in a moment. Raging ceased, all of a sudden birdies fluttering over the sunset on a smooth, glassy sea. The storm then becomes the first miracle of Jonah. It's a major miracle. It comes up. It has personality. It's conversing with the sailors. They throw Jonah overboard. It ends instantly. That's not a natural storm in any way, shape, or form. In my head, I imagine the storm is kind of purple. Like it has a, even a look to it that was just something was wrong with that storm. So before Jonah goes to Sheol, or the Hebrew word for hell, He's going to get a storm. And I think this is kind of interesting because it, it verifies the source of the problem and it confirms the sailors and their actions. So it's like God at once told Jonah, this is your fault. And he told the sailors, you're good. Don't worry about it. Because he wanted Jonah and he's going to claim Jonah. So he, the sailors then know that they're in good shape because they don't die. They sail on to happy forever after and have a much greater fear of the Lord God Yahweh. And they know that that God can stop a storm. The storm ends instantly, just like the storm ended when Jesus did what Jonah should have been doing. If Jonah prayed, I think it would have looked a lot like Jesus' miracle. But when Jesus comes, he writes it. He fulfills it. He takes this moment that Jonah screwed up in, and he makes it right, and he shows his disciples, this is what it should have looked like. You just get up and tell the wind to stop, and it stops. Nobody needs to get thrown overboard. And it's all good. Or he says, peace, be still not just to the storm, but to his disciples. So the sailors still get the peace be still from God himself, and Jonah's left in the drink. So there we go. Um, so they, uh, we have those miracles happening. First chapter is going to be a storm. Second chapter is the fish. We're getting all set up for that. Then the city, then the plant. Many get saved because of the storms and God's wrath itself. 
and they get a sense that something's real about Yahweh. He's not fake like all the other gods out there. There's something powerful here. They see prayer, or these sailors actually pray to a God that they don't know how to follow. They know nothing of the law. They know nothing of the faith traditions of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They don't know the stories necessarily of Joshua. and, and They don't know any of that. All they know is this God that, that Jonah serves. When they prayed to him, that happened. And I think for some people, when they get the storms in their life and they just cry out for Jesus and those storms stop, it's all they need. And they can become a follower of Christ. Then it's just a matter of like showing up at a church and figuring out what this Bible thing is and reading about it. But the faith part is taken care of. They're good. And we see those people that show up. There might be some of you in this room. That's what it took for you. And that's what brought you into the kingdom. So these sailors, they didn't know what they were getting into when they got into it. All they saw was power. And they saw that the wrath of God and the mercy of God are both very endlessly, eternally powerful items. And they change because of those things. In chapter 2, I'm just going to give you a preview of this. In chapter 2, other people are going to get saved because of the evidence of resurrection. I believe that when Jonah was resurrected from that fish, that's what it took. There are some people that intellectually, the way they have to get saved is hear the evidence of the resurrection, right? Lee Strobel, you know, all that stuff, the case for Christ. You know, that's what it takes is they have to be intellectually convinced. It's not just the raw power of God, that, but they got to believe it. Thomas, he had to touch Jesus' hands, and that wasn't a sin. He just wanted to know and feel convinced intellectually. Chapter 3, the whole city gets saved. Now you got hundreds of thousands of people getting saved at the same time because the community is holy and becoming saved. So sometimes people get saved because they, they're born into a Christian home and their whole family is Christians. And they just become a Christian at age five because that's what everybody in their community is doing. So if everybody around me is getting saved, they get saved too. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful story. You grew up in a healthy environment where everybody's getting saved. Nineveh's not a healthy environment. But when everybody around you is accepting the king, it's really easy when the culture goes that way, it's easy for other people to do it too. It's a lot harder for those people if the whole culture is going to you know, beach parties in Florida and you're going this other direction, right? Then you're the little fish that has to turn around on the chosen intro, right? That's a lot more difficult. But in chapter three, you got people where the whole city gets saved, makes it much easier. Chapter four... <laughs> still others, people like Jonah, get saved because of God's blessing. They feel not the storm of God, but the sweet, gentle comfort of God. And that's what turns their heart. And I think you got these different kinds of people throughout this. Verse 16, we'll finish up this chapter. The, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. In other words, the sailors got saved and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now they're doing what Leviticus says to do. So it's like, they're learning it after the salvation. You see that progression? And they take vows. That vow is so important biblically. God tells us not to take vows if we don't have to, but commands us to take a vow to follow him. And the other vow that's commanded? Marriage. Make a vow to that one other person in your life and keep it for the rest of your life. Don't make vows if you don't have to, but if you make them, you give up everything to keep them. Right? So they feared the Lord exceedingly, they took these vows. It's really similar to the, the disciples having the same reaction when the storm ends at God's will. And this is the end of that story in the New Testament. 
and they feared exceedingly. So it's almost the exact same language when that storm ends with Jesus. And they said to one another, what manner of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? They take vows to follow Jesus Christ because they've seen the power of Jesus Christ. And the disciples react to it. Faith, then action, then proclamation. It's the same thing today. Have faith in Jesus. You're supposed to then do what Jesus says and you're supposed to take a proclamation, which the New Testament calls your baptism. And those three things are the things that you're asked to do. Then people ask, well, do you have to get baptized? Right, Lisa was asking about that. No, it's a proclamation. It's something you should want to do after you have faith and you've taken action to, to follow the Lord Jesus with your life. You should want to proclaim that to other people. So the sailors in verse 15, this is just beautiful, or 16, they just do that. They just take it upon themselves to say, we're going to follow the Lord for the rest of our life. Then there's an odd chapter division. (laughs) So verse 17 sets up act two of the story. So we'll redo verse 17. I'll read it for now so we finish the chapter. But when we get up tomorrow morning and we do chapter two, I'll actually start with verse 17. And it says, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So we'll do that next. For now, let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you. We thank you that for some of us, Lord, we've seen your power and it rattled us and the the fear of the Lord moved us. And Lord, whatever it takes to get closer to you, if you need to do that in my life to move me or change me or get me on track with your will, then bring the storms, Lord. I'll take them. Uh, I'd rather spend uh, one day with you, Lord, than to live my life in peace and harmony and rest asleep in the bottom of the boat. Uh, So Lord, if you need storms to change me and to move me and to mold me, bring them because I want to be with you. So Lord, I pray for each person in this room right now. May their heart be softened to you. May they fear you and may they know your power. And may that be something that moves them in in a mighty way to following and taking vows to follow you. Lord, we thank you for these sailors. We thank you that the Gentiles, the simple nameless Gentiles, Uh, become the ones that serve you, Lord. And we will travel with Jonah to the next chapter, but Lord, we just appreciate the hearts of these men uh, that turned and changed because they saw you and they recognized you. So Lord, we have people in our life right now that, um, Lord, that are serving other gods in their life. And Lord, we just pray and and ask and invite you to, to change their hearts. And if it's the plant in your mercies that'll do that, then bring the plant. But Lord, if it's a storm in their life that they need, bring the storms. Uh, We would rather see them in your kingdom and we'd rather see them turn to you. Lord, when people come to us and ask us our story, help us to get ready to tell that story, to point the glory to you. Uh, That's such a scary moment for us as believers, Lord, when people want to know who we are and who we serve. But Lord, help us to look forward to it, not to fumble on it like Jonah, but to really embrace it and to uh, not be jumping into the ocean when we should be discipling people. So Lord, help us to serve you and to tell our story, uh, to do it in such a way that people don't have to ask after the fact. They know who we are when we board the boat uh, and we put it out in front. May we be bold in our faith. May we go to places that scare us, like Nineveh. Uh, Lord, there's lots of places like that 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 are terrifying for us. Lord, may we be more scared of you than we are of Nineveh. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, 
post it on your social media. 